households and streets and shopping centers. I'm sure there's going to be a few reluctant trips to the garage or shed or even the attic to try and find that dusty old Christmas tree. Uh, But what I find uh, particularly curious is the number of characters that seem to emerge their way onto the scene uh, at Christmas time. And one of the um, particular characters that I found interesting in our household back on the Gold Coast is my mum and dad, uh, they have a nativity scene. As you walk through the front door, just on your left on the side table, there's a nativity scene that sits there every year at Christmas, right? And at first glance, you kind of go, well, this seems like a pretty orthodox nativity scene. I mean, everyone's there. But my brother's actually really quick to point out that Jaden, there's actually something really wrong with this nativity scene. I'm like, what are you talking about, Zed? What's, what's wrong with it? He said, well, do you, see, do you see those wise men there? Well, they shouldn't be there. I mean, they didn't actually arrive on scene until Jesus was about two years old. Why do we, I mean, the three shepherds, fair enough, but why have the three wise men uh, standing next to Jesus? This doesn't make sense. So my brother would quite literally pick up the wise men and escort them to another part of the room. <laughs> and place them down. He said, well, we can't have our nativity scenes rife with heresy. So that's what my brother would do. In fact, this is that orthodox nativity scene uh, on screen there. And then this, I'm sure, would be the work of my brother, uh, placing the wise men where they ought to be. So there's there's some strange characters that do appear onto the scene at Christmas time. Here's that same nativity scene. Uh, Someone in the O'Donnell household decided to put an elf on the shelf um, where he ought not to be. But this happens quite a bit. Uh, In fact, on my Facebook feed, uh, just in the last week, we just got back from uh, holidays in Tasmania, Alice and I, and I was flicking through Facebook only to discover one particular nativity scene, which uh, seemed to have everybody there. You know, you had Mary, you had Joseph, plenty of sheep, you've got the shepherds, and then, oh, what's this? Jedi Master Yoda. (laughs) Uh, Some kid thought he'd play a prank on his parents and sneak Jedi Master Yoda uh, into the nativity scene you see there on your left. And then if that wasn't enough, uh, coming into Highfields on a Friday night after our holidays, we were driving down Highfields Road, only to discover that um, someone had put up all sorts of weird Christmas decorations. Apparently Shrek and Donkey are now part of the Christmas narrative. And that was, that was the least of it. I mean, there was SpongeBob, The Simpsons, a Stormtrooper. They've all got Christmas hats. Apparently they're all part of the story. But there's one particular character I don't believe I've ever seen... Um, emerge onto the surface of any Christmas decoration or nativity scene that I have ever come across. And that's a character by the name of John the Baptist. Now, you might go, yeah, well, he's, he's not the sort of guy we would typically associate with the Christmas narrative, would we? I mean, who, who puts John the Baptist and Christmas together in the same sentence? It's not something that we typically do. But when Luke is writing, he is both a doctor and a very capable historian And he is writing this account to a particular uh, Greco-Roman patron named Theophilus. And he says in in verse 4 that you have been, I've been writing this account that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what Luke has resolved to say is that in order to give an accurate account of the life and mission of Jesus Christ, I've got to take you right back to the beginning in order for you to have certainty. And so Luke actually wants to begin our Christmas Uh, season by reminding us of the birth of John the Baptist. It seems a little bit counterintuitive to our ears. And so what I want to do this morning, if you would uh, open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, and I want to begin this morning just by reading verses 5 through 25, and then we're going to consider a few things. So Luke 1, 5 to 25. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, 
there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, re and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my approach among people. So in order to give an accurate account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Luke wants to take us back right to the beginning, and it really begs the question, why? Why would Luke start his account here of all places? See, it's not really apparent to us as 21st century readers why he would want to start here, but you have to remember that to the people who would have originally read this, to, to the nation of Israel in the first century reading this, they would have read this and this, this page would have made them explode with joy. And we probably don't feel that reaction of joy that they would have reading this because we don't quite understand the context of the way they'd been living. And when we say that they exploded with joy, I'm, I'm not talking about the kind of joy where they got to eat their favourite flavour of ice cream and they were happy about it. No, this is a kind of joy that comes as a kind of soul-assuring weight off the shoulders, a long-anticipated joy because a long-awaited hope has finally been fulfilled. And it begs the question, like, have, you, have you ever had to wait for something? To get, to, get your, to get in their shoes a little bit this morning, have you ever had to wait for something? Uh, maybe there's some kids in the room and you're really waiting for Christmas and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I've had to wait an outrageous 365 days for Christmas to come around. And, and it's always going to be those last eight hours that are just going to feel like an eternity... I'm sure many parents are looking forward to Christmas Eve for that reason. But then waiting can be a far more painful experience, can't it? I mean, have you ever had to wait in an emergency room? You ever done that kind of waiting? What about the waiting that comes when you're on a surgical waiting list for months at a time, unsure if you'll ever be treated? 
Sometimes you're agonizing in pain, wondering, when, when is this operation coming? I've, I've been there. And then maybe for some of us, there's a kind of waiting that comes from loneliness. Maybe we've been waiting for the spouse we've long desired, and year after year, the, the knife of loneliness just digs in that little bit deeper. Or maybe even like Elizabeth here, maybe, maybe you too, you've, you've long desired to have children, but for whatever reason, that hasn't come about yet. And maybe you're not sure if it will. Waiting can be a really, really painful thing. In fact, um, Proverbs 13.12 picks this up. It says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So waiting's painful, and there's a kind of waiting that's happening here in Luke chapter 1, and it's the, it's the kind of waiting that is a 400-year-long, multi-generational, nationwide wait. And there's been a lot of crazy things that have happened in that 400 years that have just made this waiting period just about unbearable. I mean, this nation of Israel has had all sorts of foreign oppression over the years. They've been subject to Greek rule and Roman rule at the present. They've really not been able to establish themselves as their own nation. They're, They're geographically vulnerable. They're right in the middle of some great nations, both north and south, and they find themselves caught in the middle of this conflict between other nations. And then really, ever since the exile... I mean, Jewish history has been rather disappointing. I mean, yeah, okay, they rebuilt the temple, but they were kind of planning to build Grand Central and got a corner store. Like the, the temple was not that impressive, and so they're really asking, when are we ever going to see this glorious Davidic kingdom that was promised to us? When are we going to see Israel be great again? And so right now they're living under a tyrant named Herod, uh, who was appointed there by the, uh, by the Romans. And in that 400 years, to add to the, all the political pain and geographical vulnerability, in all of this 400 years, God has been silent. There's been no revelation, no new scriptures written, and there's been no ministry of the prophets. You see, right throughout the Old Testament, God sent a, a league of men to come and announce his words to his people, sometimes to bring rebuke, other times to bring assurance. And for 400 years, silence. I mean, what... What would that have been like? I mean, imagine getting to year 147. Where are you, God? I mean, how, how are we doing at year 147 of waiting? When, when will you come, God? What about year 296? What, what were the prayers looking like then? God, when are you going to come and redeem and restore Israel to what it formerly was? When are you going to come and fulfill those promises that we've long awaited? You see, this is a nation that's had 400 years of heart sickness. Their hope has been deferred, as the proverb would say. But then as we come to Luke chapter 1, we see that something has actually happened. The silence is broken and it changes everything. And we pick up the story here in Luke 1 with a man named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was a priest and he ministered in this particular time. Uh, and it's not, it's not the Herod who we spoke about a couple of weeks ago who was eaten by worms. This is a different Herod. This is Herod the Great who served uh, before the time of Jesus. And basically, he was a priest uh, of the um, division of Abijah. Now, there were 24 different divisions. There were so many priests, they had to divide them up into different divisions. And twice a year, they would make their way down to the temple to serve for one-week periods, right? And so, in this particular case, Zechariah was appointed. Now, what would happen is because there were so many priests and only a, a relative handful of temple duties to perform, what they would do is they would, they would cast lots, they would throw dice and basically see who out of all these priests are we going to get to perform certain religious duties down at the temple. 
And so what happened on this particular occasion is that the lot fell on Zechariah. Now this is, this is a rare moment. In fact, if you were a priest, you were lucky if this ever happened to you in your entire life. You could spend your whole life as a priest and the lot could never fall on you. You would never get the privilege of burning the incense at the temple. But for this man, Zechariah, he gets the privilege. So for Zechariah, this is a very scarce and it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. And so this man, on his most important day of his life, he'd be thinking, right, I, I really can't mess this up, can I? I mean, this could have been really one of those moments where someone said, hey, mate, you had one job. <laughs> it could have been one of those moments for him. So he's thinking, all right, I've, I've got to get ready for my big moment. I get to burn the incense here at the temple. And so what, what would have happened? The procedure that would have uh, gone about is he would have gathered two friends, two assistants. The first one would go into the temple and clean away uh, the mess from the previous offering that had been left on the golden uh, altar and then he would pray and remove himself from the temple and then a second assistant would come into the temple and place down hot coals getting ready to burn the incense he would then pray and worship and then he would remove himself from the temple and then it was Zechariah's turn and so he's like okay I've got one job let's not stuff this up makes his way over to the golden altar and he starts burning the incense and so what happens is as the smoke rises the people outside the temple see the smoke and they go ah that's our cue to begin praying and worshiping and so Zechariah is going about his task. He's thinking, right, I think I've got this right. We're almost there. Don't get it wrong. And then he turns to his right and there is an angel of the Lord here. <laughs> what, became, what was the most important day of his life is about to get a whole lot more important. And what the angel does next is he announces some very good news to him. And I want to spend a bit of time looking at the news that he gives to him in verses 13 through 17. So the first thing that we see here is an answered prayer. Um, one of the first things this angel says to Zechariah is, your prayer has been answered, right? Now, it kind of begs the question, which, which prayer is he referring to? We, we don't have no record of what his prayer was. Um, but think about it this way. If you're an old priest, you're in excess of 60 years of age, you know your wife is barren, and this is the most important religious event of your life, it's highly unlikely that in that moment he'd be praying for a son. I mean, he was probably praying that elsewhere. Maybe he hadn't abandoned hope. But in that moment, it's a little bit hard to believe that he would have taken that moment where he was representing the people as a time for a personal request. He was probably praying for the salvation of Israel. Lord, when will you come? When are you going to come and redeem your people? When are you going to come and rescue us from our current predicament? I mean, he may have prayed for his son, but I, I don't think that's what he would have done in this particular moment. And one of the things that gives us a bit of a clue there, look at his response in verse 18. He says, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So it, it doesn't make a lot of sense that he'd be praying for a son, the angel telling him he would have a son, and then he kind of goes, well, that's not possible it, if he just asked for it. Seems a little bizarre to me. And so what the angel announces to him is that after 400 years of silence and heartache, his prayer has been heard. In this moment, God is saying that for the first time in a long time, I am on the move. I'm, I'm starting to move the redemptive pieces on my chessboard. I am on the move to come and rescue my people. So there is a joy here that perhaps we can't completely appreciate unless we'd seen the 400 years of pain that this nation had been through. And so as much as there is a joy that him and Elizabeth would have experienced that they would bear a son after years of waiting. There is a greater redemptive purpose going on. Jesus is, uh, God is fulfilling two prayers at once. He's granting them a son, but that son has a greater redemptive purpose. You see, the last time that God had spoken 
to his people was in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, some 400 years before these events. And what Malachi said, just as he was wrapping things up, as he was wrapping up the Old Testament, one of the things he said was is that he would, there would be one who would come after him who would prepare the way for the Lord. There was, there was coming a forerunner that would prepare the way for the entry of the Messiah. In fact, if you read it in Malachi 4.5, it says that, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you've, you've heard of Return of the Jedi, right? This is Return of the Prophets. What the angel of the Lord is saying to Zechariah here is that we're ushering into a new season. That you haven't seen a prophet in a long time, you're about to see one. I'm going to start speaking to you again. That would be incredible for these people. That would bring about incredible joy, right? But having said all that, there's a bit of a tension here. On the one hand... God is speaking to us for the first time in 400 years. This is incredible. This is joyous. This is joyous. We're heading into a new season. But on the other hand, God's got something to say. Whenever God sends a prophet, he doesn't do so winsomely. He, he's always carrying an authoritative message. So there's a tension here. God has got something to say. Look what the next verse of Malachi 4 says. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, what he's getting at here is that there really can't be any message of hope unless we first understand that we have a very bleak diagnosis. The message of Christmas isn't much good to us if we don't know the bad news first. You see, the angel of the Lord says of John that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So what it implies is is that they're currently far from him. As much as they're agonizing in pain for 400 years, waiting for him to speak, if you threw a blanket over the nation Israel, they were far from him. So we can't just see the nation of Israel as these unjust sufferers at the hands of foreign oppression. Now, these are a people who are in rebellion. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule. Zechariah and Elizabeth, I mean, it says there often that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But overall... This is a people who had gone astray. And the truth is, for us, when we consider the, the character of John the Baptist this Christmas, is that we're exactly the same. We're a people who have gone astray. You know, we sang a moment ago, and I didn't even know we were singing this, but it's interesting that um, Chris and I are on the same wavelength. You can't really sing joy to the world if you're not willing to sing the next line, let every heart prepare him room. You see, the, the message of Christmas isn't all happy. You can't just say, oh, well, Easter's where we talk about sin. Christmas is where we get happy. No, for Luke, he wants to go straight to the heart and say, no, we're a people going astray. And sometimes we forget that at Christmas. It's not, sin is not an Easter issue. It's, a, it's the human condition. And that's what Luke's getting at. And you see, that was, the, that was the mission of John. He was preparing the hearts of the people to receive Jesus. His message was one of repentance. And that's why even within Zechariah's thinking, there's a little bit of a false expectation around what this Messiah is going to do. He's thinking, right, when, when this messenger comes, my son who we're about to conceive, and he ushers in the age of the Messiah, what he's going to do first, he's going to go kick out the Romans, uh, then we'll set up the Davidic kingdom again, and our nation will be great. Beautiful. See, Zechariah is probably carrying a bit of a political agenda. But John the Baptist has come for his heart. And we need to remember that. 
See, Matthew Henry, he summed it up really well. He said, John came to awaken them to a sense of sin. That's what John the Baptist is doing. And that's part of our Christmas message. You see, you can't appreciate the picture of the human condition that Luke is painting here. If you don't appreciate it, you'll never see the message of hope at Christmas time. You need to recognize your despair before you can appreciate the hope. But sadly, in our culture today, that's not a condition we're too keen to recognize, is it? The world doesn't want to say that it's in despair. The world doesn't want to say we have a sin problem. But we're a world that is both petrified of and starving for the truth at the same time. Here's what one theologian said, Douglas Gruthius. He said, Truth seems to stand over us like a silent referee. Arms folded confidently, ears open, eyes staring intently and authoritatively into everything and missing nothing. Even when an important truth seems out of reach on vital matters, we yearn for it as we yearn for a long-lost friend or the parent we never knew. Yet when the truth unmasks and convicts us and we refuse to turn its gaze, we see to banish it in favour of our own self-serving and protective version of reality. So the message we need at Christmas isn't always the one we want. One of my absolute heroes of the faith, uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a medical doctor last century who became a preacher, one of the all-time greats. And in 1970, in the month of December, he was interviewed by Dame Joan Blakewell. And basically, she was throwing him some really hard curveball questions about the human condition. What is, what is the state of man? How should we understand mankind? And what's, what's gone wrong with man? And Lloyd-Jones' response was brilliant, and it is just as relevant today. I highly recommend it on YouTube. It goes for 19 minutes. This is what he said. He said, We begin to talk about treatment before establishing a true diagnosis. You see, it's a very poor doctor who goes around medicating symptoms without being aware of the disease that is producing the symptoms. The disease is the fallen and sinful nature of man. You see, we have a sin problem. And that's what Luke wants us to recognize here in chapter 1. So if we have a sin problem, we need the right kind of solution. We need a Jesus solution. There's a book that was published uh, in May early this year by a guy named Mark Manson. Uh, It's a very popular volume. It's actually a sequel. It has a very provocative title, which I will not repeat uh, in the church. But it's advertised as a book about hope. And Manson, he rightly comments that we have this weird 21st century phenomenon that basically despite all of our advances in science and medicine, despite all of our social advocacy or our humanistic philosophy, it's really not helping us. As advanced as we are, the problem is as great as ever. (laughs) He says, we are the safest and most prosperous humans in the history of the world, yet we are feeling more hopeless than ever before. The better things get, the more we seem to despair. This is the paradox of progress. And so as much as I I agree with him on that point, we have put our hope into humanity that um, if we just advance ourselves enough, if we just do enough educational reform, we'll figure out all our problems. But basically, the more and more we do that, we realize that we're just bankrupt to help ourselves. We actually need to know what our true diagnosis is. And then he gives us, after making a pretty valid point, he then goes on to offer some of the most lifeless solutions I've ever come across in my entire life. He says, well, basically, our only hope for the world is to abandon hope altogether, (laughs) except for the one bizarre hope that he plays host to, which is that once artificial intelligence advances to such a point, it will take over us, and that will fix all the world's problems. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. This is the bankrupt hope that the world wants to sell us. He says that artificial intelligence will become the final religion. 
Merry Christmas. This is how he concludes. He says, maybe one day we will become integrated with the machines themselves. Our individual consciousness will be subsumed. Our independent hopes will vanish. We will meet and merge in the cloud and our digitized souls will swirl and eddy in the storms of data. A splay of bits and functions harmoniously brought into some grand unseen alignment. Perhaps then we will not only realize but finally embrace the uncomfortable truth that we imagined our own importance, we invented our purpose and we were and still are nothing. All along we were nothing. This is the bankrupt message of hope that was one of the top sellers in 2019. You see, we need to stop seeing the biblical call to repentance as some artifact of the past, some memory from antiquity. No, this is our only cure in our present condition. And that's what Luke wants to get at. There's no no amount of democracy or reform or medical advances or scientific discovery that's going to help us. They've got some merit, but they're not the hope of our salvation. Jesus is. And so John came to prepare our hearts Jesus preaching that message of baptism for the forgiveness of sins and repentance. As Daryl Bock put it, John paves the way, but Jesus is the way. And so the question I just want to wrap up with this morning, we're only going short today, is this, are you prepared? Have you prepared your heart for Jesus? Now we look at uh, this uh, text in Luke chapter 1 and for these people it was prospective hope they were looking forward to the coming of john the baptist and subsequently jesus they look forward to prepare themselves but for us we've got to look back have you seen the message that john has for us that he is preparing our hearts for jesus because that's our only cure so what i want to ask you this christmas before you peer into the manger and sing joy to the world have you prepared room in your heart for jesus